Welcome to season two of the First Prez podcast. Last season was titled Gathered and Sent. It was all about our purpose and mission, being both gathered as the church to equip and encourage one another and sent to be the church in our neighborhoods, schools, and workplaces. This season, we're focusing on the five values that guide all of our decisions as a church. We believe that we are called to be disciple-making disciples of Jesus, who are biblically literate, spiritually formed, mission-focused, and gospel-fluent. So welcome to season two, Values and Direction. Last week, I was watching a segment on a cable news channel, and it was asking the question, are humans inherently good or are we evil? The host was interviewing an author named Rutger Bregman, and he says that science and history prove that humans do the right things during hard times. So he's arguing against the idea, this thin veneer of society, that in the midst of a crisis, Humans reveal their true selves that we start looting and plundering. We show that deep down we're nothing but savages. So he says this. He says, that idea goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, and you find it within Orthodox Christianity, the notion that we're all sinners, and I think it's fundamentally wrong. By the way, I just always love it when non-Christians tell us what we believe, (laughs) but that's a side note. His book is called Humankind, A Hopeful History, and he's making the claim that humans are inherently good. And to make that claim, he uses examples like Hurricane Katrina, where people did come together to help one another out. We saw that recently here in Houston and in Kingwood during Harvey. There is truth to that. But he glosses over the crime and the evil acts that occur not only in everyday life, but during times of crisis. Looters that take advantage of peaceful protests. Businesses that price gouge essential items which make it nearly impossible for people in need to buy even the basics. So ultimately, his argument fails. And even the host on CNN was really skeptical. You see, the truth is both things can be true. In regular times and in times of crisis, humans are capable of beauty and terror. We are capable of both good and evil. But watching that segment, it made me curious. So I began to look around uh, for others throughout the world who were asking this same question about human nature. I always like to hear how the world wrestles with these issues because I think it helps us to better articulate what we believe so that they don't have to do that for us. So I found this study from Harvard, and they were using puppets with children. They were doing so to determine if at our core, we are good or bad. So watch this clip. They wanted to find out what is in a baby's brain. To try and unlock this secret, they've devised a kind of morality play that each baby will watch. So this character has a ball that he's playing with, and he passes it to this other fellow, who returns it in a nice reciprocal manner. And up goes the curtain. But now, he's playing with his ball again, and is now gonna pass it to this other fellow, 
who takes it and runs away with it. What they're waiting to see is which character the baby will prefer. But how will they know? Now, as an adult, seeing this, the person who gave back the ball is good, it's fine. The person who ran away with the ball is kind of a jerk. And for an adult, you just say, well, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy? You can't do that for a young baby. So what you do is you hold them out and you get the baby to choose. The experimenter who hands the two puppets to the baby, uh, she doesn't know which puppet was the good one and which puppet was the bad one. So she can't unconsciously influence the baby's preference. Hi. Hi. Do you remember these guys from the show? Look at this one. Look at me. Which one do you like? Which one do you like? Now this study found that roughly 70% of the children chose the puppet that was kind, the puppet that returned the ball. Okay, but no offense, Harvard, y'all are brilliant. That study still doesn't tell us if a child is good or bad. It doesn't tell us anything about our nature. It just tells us that even as children, we can recognize the difference between good and bad behavior. Recognizing right behavior, it doesn't make us right. Knowing what good is doesn't make us good. Actually, if you think about it, only 70% of the kids chose the kind puppet. So does that mean that 30% of us can't even recognize good behavior versus bad behavior? Cynically, I kind of thought that, you know, the kid chose the puppet that gave the ball back. It's kind of a selfish choice. He doesn't want to play with somebody who's going to take his things. Now, look, I'm not being anti-science, and I am not against studies like this. Expert voices matter. But sometimes even the smartest among us, we just don't know the right questions. You see, when the world wants to understand human nature, it often turns first to science but some issues just aren't scientific in nature. Some things are just theological. And when scientists try to wrestle with theology, oftentimes they don't know the questions they should be asking. You see, the world around us frames everything in terms of good and evil, but the world simply isn't that simple. The Bible doesn't tell us that every single human ever is totally and completely evil. That's not what the fall tells us. It just tells us that we're broken. That we are capable of both good and evil. That tree that was ate, eaten from in the garden, it was the tree of the knowledge of both good and evil. You see, the problem from a biblical perspective is that in Genesis 1 and 2, we are whole and complete. But because of Genesis 3, we're just now broken. And I would argue that every human on the planet recognizes that we are all broken in one way or another. That we have the ability to recognize and to react with love and kindness and mercy. Yet often we don't. The problem within humanity isn't that we're all thieves and murderers. It's simply that there's something in us that's broken. But it needs to be fixed. We need to be healed.
This brokenness can show up in evil and terrible acts, of course, but it also shows up in really subtle ways. It shows up in our relationship with God and our relationship with ourself and in the details of our relationships with others. The dissension and the disagreements that rise within us and among us, the way that we choose to interact with others, especially with others that disagree with us, all of this comes out of our brokenness. Earlier, Sabrina read a passage from Philippians 2. It's this beautiful Christ hymn talking about the humility of Christ, but it's surrounded by an appeal to the church in Philippi that they should be united, that they should be humble the way Christ is humble, that they should overcome their division, their anger, their frustrations at each other, and be united by the gospel so that they might shine like stars and reveal God's love to the world around them. You see, church history tells us that there was a division in the church in Philippi. The origin of that division was a fight between two women, Euodia and Suntuke. And Paul confirms this fight in chapter 4. He said, I plead with Euodia and Suntuke to be of the same mind in the Lord. This argument that grew and festered throughout the church, it posed not only a threat to Paul's ministry, but to the gospel witness of that entire church in that city. You see, they were unable to fluently communicate the gospel to the world around them because they were steeped in their own drama. I mean, thankfully, that never happens in the church today, right? Paul simply asks them, he says, reflect on Christ's humility. And in the same way, be humble so that you can be united to one another. He tells them that this unity must be fought for and it must be achieved because they need to get back to work. They need to remember their purpose and they need to get back on mission. Now today, I want to read a couple of verses from the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, many of you are familiar with it. Jesus is telling current disciples and disciples-to-be that they are to be different, that they're to live and move in this world as kind of an oddity, that they're supposed to be peculiar and different. He tells them and he tells us that they're to be salt and light in the world by keeping open communication with others, by banishing any resentment in their hearts, fighting off lust like death, infidelity like murder, seeking to avoid oaths and dramatic oath-like statements, be salt and light by being undefensive, nonviolent, and poised, even in loving our enemies. And after he says all of that, Jesus concludes with this. And I'm using a translation by a New Testament scholar named Frederick Bruner. Uh, he gets the nuance of the Greek in a way that our modern translations miss. So here's how he translates Matthew 5, 46 through 48. He says, you see, if you folks just love the people who are loving you, what kind of reward do you think you should get from that? Aren't even the extortionist tax collectors doing the same? And if you folks think, just give a warm greeting to your spiritual brothers and sisters, what's so special about that? Aren't even the pagans doing the same? So then, you folks are going to be perfectly mature people, just as your heavenly Father is perfectly mature. You are to be a peculiar people in the midst of a broken world, 
perfectly peculiar. Let's pray. God, pray that as we've heard your gospel read now, that your gospel would be proclaimed online in the sanctuary, most importantly, in our hearts and minds, so that we can be transformed more and more into your image, so that your good and perfect will might be done through us in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Now, the past two weeks, uh, we have been looking deeper into our fifth value as a church to be disciple-making disciples who are gospel-fluent. And we've done some vocabulary work. Uh, Today, there are two words that you need to know if we're going to continue to grow in gospel fluency. And those words are justification and sanctification. Now, look, there are volumes written about these two words. So I just want to try to make them as easy to understand and as easy to remember as possible. Justification is given to us as a gift through Christ's blamelessness. It is forgiveness that's received by grace through faith. Sanctification develops Christ's blamelessness in us. It is our transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's how one scholar describes the two. He says, justification tells us how a person becomes a Christian. Sanctification tells us how a person grows in the Christian life. Justification tells us that in Christ, God is for us. Sanctification tells us that by the Holy Spirit, God is in us. Justification tells us that Christ is our Savior who died for us. Sanctification tells us that the same Christ is Lord who commands us to live for him. John Calvin, he put justification and sanctification together. He married them, made them inseparable, more than any other theologian of his time. He argued that justification and sanctification can neither be separated or confused with each other. They are two parts that make up the whole that we call salvation. So fast forward 500 years, here's the difficult bottom line. From Calvin and the reformers all the way to the best scholars today, they all agree. No one is a Christian until he or she is both justified and sanctified. Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you folks are going to be a perfectly mature people just as your heavenly father is perfectly mature. Now, some, some translations say it this way, and you may be more familiar with this, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Now, look, I don't know about you, but translated that way, I, I just want to give up. I mean, how could I, right? How could I possibly not only be perfect, but a perfection that could even be compared to God's? So let me make two quick points about this really difficult verse. First, that word perfect in English, it just doesn't mean the same thing that the author intends in the Greek. In English, the word perfect often means faultless or flawless, something superhuman. But perfection in scripture, especially when applied to us, it's more about wholeness and completion. It's about something that was broken that is being made new. Like a surgeon's scalpel does the cutting, but it's the hands of the surgeon eventually that complete the procedure. What was once broken has now been healed and made new. 
One author says it like this. He says, Christian perfection is the width by which disciples are able to embrace the life of Christ by the power of the Spirit, not the heights to which they are able to individually climb on their own. Now, the second thing, I've told you before about Greek verbs. They, they just don't work the same way that English verbs work. Now, in the Greek, uh, the verb is eimi, E-I-M-I. It's our to-be verb. Now, Greek has a future tense like English, but there's a form of the future tense that's called the indicative. Now, look, you don't really need to know that. You don't need to know that. I just want you to know that I'm not making this up. A future indicative verb in the Greek, it tells us two things. It's first a promise because it's something that's being done to you. You are being made perfect is a more accurate way to say it. Over time, something is being done in you that is making you more mature, that is making you complete. Now, at the same time, this one verb is not only a promise, but it's a command. You are being perfectly matured, so live like it. There, there are few things in this world that are as awkward as a grown adult that acts like a child. Scripture is telling us you are being perfectly matured. You are being made complete. So be perfectly mature and complete. You were broken. You were being healed. So live like someone who's healthy, not like someone who's sick. You see, it's both a promise and a command. You disciples, church, you are going to be perfectly mature, perfectly complete. So be perfectly mature and complete. You see, I think so often in the Western church, we think of salvation as this one-time event, this moment in time in which we are eternally saved from hell. And so often that moment in time is forgotten. And then we return to the life that was. I prayed the prayer that made me a Christian, or so the church told me, when I was 12 years old. And then I was baptized at a church camp. They put my name up on a wall, and then I went about my life. They didn't pursue me. I didn't pursue them. There was no life with Christ that came from that moment. That moment was forgotten, and I returned to the life that was. You see, justification is that free gift of forgiveness. It's that grace that cleanses us and making, that makes us new. But remember, it cannot be separated from sanctification. The healing and restoration in us that's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. That sanctifying work began at the cross with our justification, and it'll be finally made complete when we find ourselves at the heavenly throne of God. All right, so what? Well, I hope that's at least partially obvious. This is an argument that we make here all the time. The Christian faith is not simply a means to inherit a mansion in the sky after we die. It's a way of living here and now. A life that is to be lived as an anticipation of that heavenly life to come. And when a community of disciples lives together in this way, when we live together in this way, we will shine like stars and the world around us will notice. 
the world around us can come to confess that Jesus is Lord, that he alone is worthy. The Bible will go on to describe the fruit of the Holy Spirit, this evidence that the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is being done in us, that we are being made complete. The fruit of the Spirit is evidence that the Holy Spirit's working in you, and it's something that you can actually measure. These fruit are present and growing in every Christian, all of them, to one extent or another. So ask yourself, are you more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, filled with goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Not perfectly, not yet, not on your own power. But are you more than you were before? It's a fruit metaphor for a reason. (laughs) Has that seed that has been planted in you died? Or is it growing ever so slowly? The final harvest is coming, not here in this life, but at the start of the next. You are not the gardener. You're just the soil. So is that soil producing fruit or not? And if you're not sure, then repentance, returning to the foot of the cross is the answer. You see, I really believe that in a way, wrestling with our own salvation, it's a really healthy exercise. Because if in my life, if, if I claim justification through the blood of Christ, but see no evidence of the sanctifying power of his spirit in my life, then there's a problem. Philippians encourages us, tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And as Jesus says in Matthew, you folks are going to be perfectly mature people just as your heavenly father is perfectly mature. Both of these promises and commands are evident in the life of a disciple of Jesus. God has promised he is making you new, so be made new. God has promised he's giving you a new life, so let go of the old and live into that new life now. It's the kind of life that will make others wonder. It'll make them curious. It'll make them open and willing to hear the good news of Jesus because they see evidence that healing is possible, that faith is real, even evidence that Jesus is Lord. You see, a gospel-fluent person communicates this good news of Jesus by telling the story with our mouths and with our lives. That story, told through us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is what causes us to shine like stars to be salt and light, to guide a lost and broken world to the loving arms of the one true healer. We see evil and darkness in the world around us every day. And it's so easy to be distracted by the world's questions, be distracted by abstract questions like, are we fundamentally good or evil? But that misses the point. Because no matter how good you are, you're still broken. We are all broken. And at some level, I really believe every human on the planet knows that this is true. A gospel-fluent people 
will be able to shine a light through that darkness that will provide comfort and hope and healing, a new life to people who desperately need it. See, in the mess that we see in our culture right now, there is one core issue. And there is only one Savior who can redeem and restore what's broken. The only solution to the brokenness in humanity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the world around us, they don't have the words. They don't know what questions to ask. They don't know where to look. That's, that's why we call them lost, not because they're worse than us, but because they are us before we found the truth. And that lost world is in desperate need of a people who understand this truth, a people who have lived and experienced the healing of their own brokenness, a people who can fluently articulate the problem and the solution with words and in the way they live their daily lives. That is the mission that's been given to us. See, Jesus calls us to embrace forgiveness, to embrace this transformation, embrace humility, unity, embrace one another, to reach out and embrace a broken and lost world so that they might find and experience healing that they might be squeezed by the loving embrace of their Holy Father. Let's pray. God, in your wisdom and in your power, you have chosen to do your work in the world through us. Because we are so utterly broken, Christ's death and resurrection is the means by which you drew us back to you. Your Holy Spirit is the means by which we are healed and transformed into tools that can be used by you to bless the world. So God, help us to really reflect on this life as we might go around this world asking questions like, what's the meaning of life? What greater meaning could there be than to be a person who is broken yet is being healed and a person who can provide that healing to others. God, inspire us and give us the courage to pursue that purpose and that mission as individuals and as this particular church in this particular neighborhood, in this city. Help us to shine like the stars so that the lost might find you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website. You can also follow us on Facebook and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.